Welcome to America Can We Talk, one of our very special Thursday shows. We have an in-studio audience, which is just really, really fun to do. And thank you for tuning in to America Can We Talk. We have a guest today who's joining us via Skype, and so you'll see him on screen in just a moment. And I want to briefly introduce him and his book. And I, I love this topic. First of all, I'll just show you his book. It's called Race Crazy, BLM 1619 and the Progressive Racism Movement. This is a picture of his book. It's actually really, really, really well done. And among the points that, uh, first of all, among the things that you should know about the book, that he has gotten endorsements of this book uh, by a lot of names any conservative would know and appreciate. Um, so that's a great thing. Dennis Prager and many others have endorsed this book. But he's talking about where we stand in American race relations today. And as I mentioned to you many times on the show, I just think it is the saddest thing in America that we are actually at a time where so many Americans feel like, believe there is deep racial turmoil, uh, feel that our society is divided by race, and it just seems, it seems America is better than that, and the founding ideas of America are better than that. And so what he's written about in Race Crazy, um, I'll just tell you briefly, he's, he's talking about what's happened, and not just where we are right now, but what you can do about it as someone, as a concerned person who loves America. Before I bring on the author, Charles Love, I will tell you that he has written other books. Uh, one, the first one, written right after uh, President Obama won, is called Logic, The Truth About Blacks and the Republican Party. And then his second book was We Want Equality, How the Fight for Equality Gave Way to preference. I mean, you got you know you already like the books because of the titles, but this one's called uh, Race Crazy, and we'll talk with him today about how he sees the uh, challenges America faces on race and how we, what we do to move forward. So, we welcome to the show, Charles Love. Hello, sir. Okay, we don't we have sound. I'm sure coming. Okay. Can you hear me? There you go. Now we can. Okay. Hello, sir. Well, um, first of all, I love your book, I, and I appreciate you also, a couple weeks ago, sent me a link to a talk that you gave about the book, which was very illuminating. Um, and, you know, honestly, to have conversations about race in America, it, it seems vital. It seems like we kind of talk past each other, uh, we talk around each other, and, and don't always listen to each other. But you had, I guess I want to run through a bunch of things. Let me start with the, the actual title of your book. You use the expression progressive racism movement. So would you please tell us what that is or what you mean by that? Well, thank you again. It's been, it's really great to be here. And um, uh, the intro, we'll get into some of that stuff that's really important. But to simply uh, explain why I came up with that name, you know, you know, how do I define what is going on? And so I look at, you know, what the extreme movement on race is doing, what they're saying, what they're demanding. And I kind of touched on it. I was a little prophetic in the last book when I said mm -hmm. that it's 2017 when I wrote it and I said that we were going to move to where no one was talking about equality anymore. I didn't say equity. I didn't know that they were going to, you know, go that far, but I knew it was going to be, you know, trying to level the playing field from an outcome standpoint. And so when I look at the way that people talk about things now, um, they put different labels on it. You hear the 1619 Project, you hear anti-racist. So I wanted a way to explain to people that really they're all just doing different versions of the same thing. So what the, my idea of what the progressive racists are is they do and say things that if you took out emotion and the skin color and just put up the words next to each other, they sound like John Calhoun. Right. It is the, the it was it is the argument that we all know people who understand history. He was a open. There were a lot of people who were proponents for slavery, but mostly it was because it benefited them financially or because they just were racist. This is a guy who's like, no, I care. It's benevolent uh, racism. Like, you know, blacks are less intelligent. They are not ill uh, prepared to protect themselves. So they need us white people to defend them and to provide for them, otherwise they wouldn't be able to survive. So that's why he thought slavery was good. The only difference between John Calhoun and the progressives today is that they have different intent. So their intent, they said from a standpoint is 
blacks are oppressed or blacks need help or blacks are treated fairly. So we want to put a system in place that would help them. But really, the argument is the same. Blacks can't do, blacks, blacks won't do, blacks aren't at the same level as them. So we need to do something. So that's why I call it that. It's no different than when you hear academics say, well, do you really expect a black person to be able to achieve at the same level I am? Don't you want more blacks at Harvard? Sure, that'd be nice. But don't you think the only way they can get there is if we lower the standards, because they're not really smart enough to get in on their own merit. This is the same thing that John and Calhoun would say. So I call them, you know, I call it racism, but it's a kinder, gentler racism. That is, I mean, if we end the interview right now, that was a fabulous, fabulous commentary. You said so many things in your book and in the talk that I, I will tell our listeners, I'm going to link to this talk on our website. You can go listen to this longer speech he gave. I think it was on C-SPAN because uh, it was very, very good. But uh, it's exactly right. The whole, I've thought so many things that the left pushes are insulting to people with self-confidence and a normal sense of their uh, abilities to function in society. And, and it, they're offensive, uh, it should be offensive to the black community. You also wrote, though, a lot about, and I really want to dive into the um, organ. I know you said, and I, I'll let you tell our listeners why, you didn't spend much time in this book talking about critical race theory, which I must tell you, I've had meltdowns on my show about critical race theory. I've had experts on uh, trying to talk about it because historically it, it has Marxist roots. And, and you said in your talk, you know, but most people aren't going to follow the Marxist roots part. Um, but critical race theory being infused in the public schools and private schools is so troublesome, but you chose not to talk about much in this book. So why was that? Right. So people will be surprised by it. when I explain it, though, it makes perfect sense. It's like uh, when you're trying to present anything else, who is your target audience, right? Are you trying to shift the tide? Because those who are complaining about what's going on in school, I'm 100% behind them and they're right. But turn on a, a talk show on Fox or CNN, doesn't matter which side, and listen to the argument. If you get a debate, what do you get? CRT is in schools and it's bad. No, it's not. Yes, you're teaching it. No, we're not. You don't even know what it is. Yes, I do. Well, where did it start? Now, when did they ever, but, but in that argument, right, when do they ever talk about what is actually happening in school? So what I do, I take the approach that's really simple. I talk about the problem. I never say CRT. So when I talk to my friends or when I talk to the community, I say, well, you, you think that racism is a problem, right? And they'll say yes. And I said, we should, we should address it? Sure. I said, okay, so you want that fixed. But at the same time, you wouldn't really say that every white kid in America is part of the problem and he at 10 and 12 needs to own his responsibility in it, would you? And my friends like, no, that's silly. Of course I wouldn't say that. Or let's you know, talk about my Trojan horse theory in that, see, there's, there's, we just want to teach honest history is really just a cover to get, you know, gender and sex and all these things in school. Say, so you open to LGBT community and people should be able to do whatever they want to do? And I'll say yes. I said, but at the same token, you think you are in charge of your child? Of course I am. So would you be okay with teachers telling your 8 to 12-year-old kid that they can be whatever gender they want, and if your son Bob wants to be Lisa, not only will they let him do it, they will let him answer to Lisa at school, let him smuggle in his dress that he wears all day at school to look like a girl that keeps in his locker and never tell you about it. Would you be okay with that? They say, no, so you see what I'm doing? I'm pointing out things that we can prove are happening in the schools. And I say, do you think this is problematic? Now, at the far left, they'll say no. But most of my normative people who are liberal, who are black, who are middle class, who are working class, all say no. So I get them to listen to what I'm saying. And all, the only question is whether I'm telling the truth or not, which they can go find out. And because I'm in part of an educational organization, parents send me stuff. So if I can prove that they're doing this, and I already got them to agree that it's a problem, notice I never had to argue about CRT. If I take CRT off the table, I lose the bigger part of the debate when we argue over the definition. Doesn't matter. Is it problematic? Should we stop it? Um, I love that. And I do, you know, it's a funny thing. Years ago, I used to uh, do these little pro these um, workshops called Politically Speaking. And I had that same concept of if you take a label or a slogan that's popular, people will, they, they're pretty, their sides are set. They're either yes or no. But if you dig beneath that and just say, well, do you think this? And, and, or plant a seed. How do you feel about this? Let me share how I feel. 
it, it, it allows them time to open their thought and get off the uh, my side, your side thinking. I love that. But you did dive in, and you do talk about in your book um, and, and in your talk that I heard, um, you talked about this idea of this um, the 1619 Project. And um, <laughs> you're smiling already. Well, I will tell you that 1619 Project one thing you said I had not realized, someone, the, the uh, woman from the New York Times, Hannah Nicole Smith, I think her name is, she, did, she wrote this out basically with others giving input in late 2019, no, summer 2019, and by fall 2019, it was in how many public schools? 4,500. Okay. That is a massive consequential shift of thought. The power of one person and... I mean, she didn't write it all. She took input from all these uh, alleged experts. But that's a massive shift in a short amount of time and what the public schools were teaching. So give us your summary version of what 1619 Project's all about. I mean, we've talked about my show 100 times, but what's your take on the 1619 Project and why she wrote it? Well, well, we'll get into why she wrote it. It's, it's, that goes to the argument of whether people are doing this for fame or fortune or whether they really believe it. And I think there's a difference. I think they don't all fit in the same box. But what I will say is 1619 is probably, and you made a point of how many schools. That's important to talk about for a bit because whether it's one person or a group or she had support, nobody really without it, it, this being insidious or intentional would have the time and the, and the ability to write something that quick, put it in the New York Times Magazine and get it into that many schools that, that quickly. And it's important to note the time because it's before George Floyd. So we know a lot of things changed after that, but it was already a school and big school districts, Chicago, I think DC, several others said, yeah, our school, public school district is going to teach this. So what does it say? I don't know if you go to the C-SPAN talk that you were re referencing at the end, they play the Q&A. So now I'm speaking at a conservative event. So I would assume everybody in the audience are Republicans or conservatives. And I said, everybody's upset about this education thing, right? 4,500 schools in 2019, obviously more now. Show of hands, I said, how many of you had read the project? Not one hand in the room went up, yep. not one. So they are openly teaching this, unlike the CRT where they say they're not, they're teaching this. Nobody knows what it is. And the basic premise is really simple in their own words. They believe that the founding of the America should be reimagined as 1619, because that is when the first African slaves came to America, which is not true, because there's a lot of things that are factually inaccurate. That's not true, but let's assume so. Just talking about what they believe. So that is the true start of America, because without it, there would be no America. So America is an idea, but it was an idea that was false when it was written. Uh, Without the slavery and anti-black racism, America could not exist. And it's in the DNA of America, which is, you know, a pretty big argument to make saying that it is pretty close to unchangeable. So that's the argument. So everything they write is from that preface. And the last and most dangerous thing is that they say, and because of this, everything that we see today, 2019, 2020, 2022, every negative that blacks experience can be directly linked to slavery. You lose your job, slavery, right? You don't get to get the loan that you need, slavery, right? The expressway is slavery, traffic jams are slavery, uh, your doctors, are, uh, the way your doctor's services, uh, your medical needs is, is, is tied to slavery. Everything, they write an essay on every one of these. And as you know, in the book, I write a chapter on every essay. So yep. I want the schools, because I know every school, if we win these fights, the Chris Rufos, the Goldwater Institutes, that'd be great, but it'll be a long fight, may not win them all. So some of these schools are still gonna teach this, right? So I'm just saying, if you're teaching it, Put the project out there, take my book, chapter to chapter, essay, and, and read it. And it's a, it's a critical thinking exercise. Who's telling the truth? Who's more accurate? It makes you think. And it fills in the spots, because I also write that it's well written from a, you know, kind of a descriptive standpoint. And it's, you know, mostly factual. But what they leave out is intentional and really important. It's leaving out really important parts of the story. And I feel that in. And I just challenge people to read them both and see which one is true. So that is really the premise of what they're trying to do. They want to reimagine America as 
um, a wholly racist country that's racist to its core. And it says things like whites did this, whites are this, whites caused this, whites, whites, whites. Not some whites, not Southern whites, which uh, recently Nicole Hannah Johnson's turned the project into a book. And in the book, she says, I cleaned some things up. I probably should have narrowed the scope of kind of thing, but it's already out there. You're already teaching it in school. So I think in saying that you're admitting that you had an agenda. One of the found, that was great. One of the foundational things about the 1619 project is is trying to convey the idea that America is permanently systemically racist. I mean, I know that comes from what you just said, but the concept that America, I mean, it's one thing to say, of course, slavery was racist, and, and that was that occurred in the beginning of America at, at the time of America's founding. But that they're trying to say still today is a systemically racist country, and if you accept that premise. And then you negotiate on that premise, you are institutionally systemically racist, then we're pretty much need to concede to every demand that's being made because, and, and you very directly in your book and you're saying, no, I, I reject that. We are not a systemically racist country. Why do you say that? Well, first I'll say something better. You know, I, I think the way we approach these people, if you talk to them, is to just use their own logic against them. In my book, I talk about giving them their argument, right? So if they were to say DNA can't be changed, that the whole core of the country is racist, I wouldn't say given to the demands. I would turn it and say, why are you trying to fix it? Right. That was if it can't be fixed, why are you replacing it? Just leave it alone. Move to another one. Start your own country. Why are you trying to fix this inherently racist country? You can't. When you do all this, unless you're removing all the white people, when you, the white people are all racist, right? D'Angelo taught us that. Every white person, you, Debbie, and everybody that you know is racist. Okay, give them their argument. I'm not even arguing. Every white person is racist. So even if you change the system, unless you remove all the white people from the system, isn't it still racist? All the racists are still there. So I don't even think they necessarily believe what they're saying. They believe there's racism, but I don't think they believe that everyone is racist or the entire system is racist because they would act differently if they did. So that's the problem with the premise of their argument. It's, it's illogical. So what I argue is you can't. So I, I like to do, I do some in the book. And when I speak, I do more. People react more to story. I mean, we, we like to give them facts, right? The service like to say, but look at these facts. But some people tune that out. Right. But when you can bring it on a personal level or tell them a story or explain it in a way that everyone can get it, it seems to be more beneficial. It penetrates more deeply. So I, I like to say, you know, I used to work in restaurants for years. So one example I'll say, so let's say you go to a restaurant and you get a dish and it is the best thing you ever had. You're like over the, over the moon. You can't believe it. And the chef is really nice. He comes over and says, you like it that much? I'll teach you, give you the recipe and I'll teach you how to make it. It becomes your go to. Every time you have a, a party at your house, you cook this dish, people rave, right? It's your go-to dish. You've been doing it for five or six years. Suddenly you find out that that chef is a racist and an anti-Semite. So my question isn't, should you be upset at that person and, and, and ashamed to be his friend and never talk to him again? My question is simply, does the recipe still work? Because this is what they're saying about the idea. They literally say the idea was false. So what you're saying when you say that, you're not saying, they, I know what they mean, but words matter. So they'll say, well, I'm saying Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, so he didn't mean it. But you didn't say he didn't mean it. You said that the idea was false. So the idea that men are all created equally, they don't get their rights from other men, they get their rights from their creator, creator and they should then be free to help dictate what those laws are, and they're part of that process, right? And we're all included regardless of background. You're saying that's false? So if you're saying that's false, then you're actually saying there are differences between people, and based on those differences, we should use them to dictate who gets what rights and how much of that. So which is it? It can only be one of the two. Okay, I love this. A bunch of directions to go, but I wanna go back to one point you made, and I've made it many times too in my show, and I think it's so important it's whether they're advocates for critical race theory um, or they are 1619 Project advocates uh, and the, the Black Lives Matter movement, rarely do any of them advocate for a solution, a therefore here's what to do. And at some point when you're trying to respond, if you really feel like people have a legitimate complaint and it's heartfelt, the sane response is to say, oh, so how do we fix this? And I love that you embellished on that in your book and your talk about the idea, if you are really concerned, you believe all this, 
You'd be offering solutions or making demands, and you just don't hear that out of any of these racial agitator, progressive racism movement people. How do you get the other, your term again? Progressive racism movement. Term. You don't hear it. I'd love to have you talk about that. Why not? Right. They don't have offer solutions, but here's another interesting thing. The sto they're, they're telling these wonderful stories about the founding of America and America bringing it up. It's a timeline, timeline, timeline. They don't say anything positive. Not one thing. Nothing. Nothing at all. Zero. Not one thing. Read it. You won't find anything. But here's what's so interesting about it. I get there's a, there's a, a point to the project, so they're not going to deviate from that. So I don't expect anything positive about white people. Of course not. You got some ulterior motive and you're writing that. Fine. Can't argue. I can disagree with it, but you had a point. You had something that you were trying to prove. Why is there nothing positive about blacks? Yeah. Do you know, you, you all should go skim through the, through the project. You will find that it's about America. It starts at 1619, goes through the founding, goes all the way up through the 80s and 90s and through the 50s and the civil rights movement. Talks about all that. Yet somehow, talk a good piece about reconstruction. Yet somehow they never mention anything positive that blacks did to overcome it. They don't mention Frederick Douglass or Booker T. Washington. They talk about reconstruction, but they, the only president they mention is Rutherford B. Hayes to talk about the challenged election of 1876, but they don't mention Grant. How do you mention Reconstruction and not mention Grant, the two-term president whose whole presidency fell within Reconstruction? You know, is it because he decimated the Klan? Is it because he, they passed civil rights law? They don't talk about the civil rights laws. They don't talk about there had to be benevolent whites. If you talk about the Underground Railroad or people that assisted, you don't mention white people. You talk about civil rights movement, you don't mention any of the whites or Jewish people who came down from the North and got killed and lynched trying to defend blacks' rights. You don't mention any of that. No abolitionists. You don't, you don't quote the founders when you call them all racist. You say the founders were slave owners. You don't mention that nearly a third of them never owned slaves and some of them were flat out abolitionists. So how can we be talking about honest history when you leave stuff out? So there's no positives and no solutions. So like you say, if it was a problem, you would say, so this is what we should do. But you know that people wouldn't be on board, even as your ranks grow in the far left, the average person who would agree with you that there's a racism problem is probably not gonna agree. So let's just pass laws just for black people. So that's not going to work. So what are you going to do? What is your solution? Right. And then why, if the solution is government led, why should I, as a you know, normal black person who's kind of leery of trusting the government, be willing to be all in for the government that I don't trust? It's the same thing with reparations. Even though there's so many problems with it, like who gets it? How do you pay it? How much should it be? How do you calculate that? Do you check DNA? My thing is, you got to do something to prove that the person is eligible. So you're expecting of the 40 million blacks not to have any of them that, to be so um, distrustful of the government that they're not going to be willing to just willingly give up their DNA. They won't get a vaccination. What makes you think they're just going to give up their DNA in the hopes that you might give them money? Yeah, I did want to talk about reparations in a moment, but um, you're just making so many excellent points about the futility of trying to have a serious negotiation, serious discussion with the heartfelt advocates of BLM 1619. You can't have a discussion. Oh, because yeah, I got to interrupt you there. You don't. You don't. I never had to. What I ask right. people to do is to talk to people who are politically not aligned with you so they're liberal so they don't agree with your policies but they understand that's the problem the goal is to get more of them to speak up oh I don't waste your energy once you know that somebody's like fully in bought, bought in on this stuff you just go okay and you walk away because you're never going to get them to admit anything I'm with you all the way and I so I was wanting to turn to next was you made a great distinction between uh, liberals, people who are just, you know, they they maybe look, lean to the left a little bit and, and for a variety of uh, political or economic reasons, they have those kind of views, but they're not hard left. And you talk about how you as a common person, you also just say, by the way, you said several times something about you don't really want to talk politics, you want to talk culture. And I, I can appreciate it very much. So you make this point about how when you are trying to bring America along, help America rise out of where we are right now uh, with racial tension, that you should actually be an advocate yourself. You should speak up to your liberal friends, not the hard left. So tell us how to do that, like what we should say and what do we do? Well, first, let's be honest. You don't know if a person's a hard left or a liberal until you talk to them, right? So you talk to everybody you don't know. 
you just kind of, you know, put out feelers. And eventually, if, they, if, they, if they're crazy, they're going to bring the crazy. They can't put a lid on it. It's going to come out. Uh, but the key is, and people talk about, you know, we heard over the holidays the last few years how families are fractured and you can't talk about stuff for Thanksgiving. You get disinvited. And that's unfortunate. And I, and I admit that it shouldn't happen. But most of that is because people are broaching the subject from a political standpoint, right? They're, you know, Trump win, and they know their family members are already angry in 2016, and they show up to Thanksgiving with a MAGA hat on, and they're like, ha-ha in your face. Of course you're getting put out. So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying engage everybody. But you say stuff like a topic comes up, you're in a coffee shop, the TV's on, a news topic comes up. You just look at a guy and say, you know, what do you think about that story? And then based on what they say, if they if they seem like they might have a bit of an understanding, you draw out more. If they sound like they might be liberal, you find out how liberal. You say, yeah, I, I can see why you'd be concerned with that. But uh, isn't it also the case that this, or isn't this, you'll see what they say. And if they say, yeah, that's a problem too, you know, that's, the, that's your target audience. If they say, nope, I don't care, then you say, oh, okay, and you grab your coffee and you go away. But the way you should address it is not by saying Democrat or Republican or Biden or Trump. Just like I said with the CRT thing, you talk about the issue. Let's say the topic is crime. Right. You say, OK, you know, crime is pretty bad. You don't go. You don't lead with the It's Blantifa's fault. That's what I call BLM and Antifa because they're really the same. Don't lead with the Blantifa. You open with, wow, so what, you know, what do you think the problem is? You, you get them to talk. You like Columbo, as I write in the book. You know, you tell, you do, get them to talk. Tell me what the problem is. I think it's this. Well, do you think it's an issue with getting, letting people out? Well, I think bail report, uh, reform is good because we can't, it disproportionately affects poor people and this, that, the other. Say, yeah, you don't want poor people held in, in, in jail because they can't afford bail. But if, if they're violent criminals, they should be in jail. So isn't the solution what the Constitution says, you know, as a constitutionalist? that they get a speedy trial. So I don't want them in jail a long time because it takes too long to try them. But if they committed a violent crime, don't we still want them in jail because they're a danger to society? So you, you notice, I never said anything about Democrats or Republicans. I never said those liberal DAs are doing this. Might believe it, but I didn't say that. I just asked them simple questions and say, what do you think we should do? And what is the solution? Do you think this is part of the problem? If they say stuff, whether you agree with it or not, that's not crazy. That's the person you want to talk to. If they just say, I don't think there should be jails at all. Why would you argue with that person? You want all the criminals off the street. They don't think there should be jails. That's nothing to discuss with that person. But you have to engage in order to find out. Same thing with education. There's a gap. How do we fix the gap? Do we, do we, find mentors and, 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 and give people free tutoring and do what we can to get the grade levels up? Or do we just blame it on racists and say it's the white people's fault and see what they say? Love that. I love that idea of engaging with people and really just uh, you're listening to what they're saying. So you're gauging where they are and then and then you can understand. You can figure out where to go with them. Um, and, you know, I have to tell you, you had a lot of points early on that I want to loop back to. Um, this idea in schools, you talked about education a bit, and in schools, they have so many parents engaged wanting to fight at the school system, wanting to fight against critical race theory, wanting to fight against, and I mean, you, I know you're, you prefer more to focus on the culture, but don't parents need to be doing this in school, need to be standing up saying, we don't want critical race theory in the schools? I mean, isn't that, and is it a role for white parents and black parents to be saying that? Oh, it's a role for everyone. And now I'll go further. You know, my argument is is to try to get the people who aren't engaged because let's be real, it's a human nature thing. We we're we're up against this issue, right? We are naturally controlling our own environment and protecting ourselves. So let's say you think what's going on is bad, you don't not paying attention. And I give you my brother as an example. My brother doesn't really pay attention to the news, doesn't talk about that stuff. When I tell him what's going on in schools, he's shocked. Like he's like floored, like I can't believe it. He thinks it's terrible. But does he act? No. Why? Not because he's a Democrat, not because he's a leftist, because his kids are grown, right? So we need to get grandparents and get people to understand how that still will affect them. What these kids who are being indoctrinated will be when they grow up, whether they will be, you know, just depressed, whether they will have mental issues, whether they will be violent, whether they will be angry, whether they will be successful and be your next, you know, uh, p politician or, or, or you know, uh, accountant or something. So they need to understand it affects them for one. But no, all the parents should be involved. It's not just white and black, it's everyone. I'm not saying they shouldn't be involved. I want everybody involved, right? I go, I speak often at educational things at parent groups and teachers, schools. 
All I'm saying is don't approach it. Don't lead with politics. Don't say we got to get these Democrats out. Right. Because okay. because the people, wait, here's the thing. The people know who's doing it. If I walk into the school board and I say, I demand that you stop, you know, uh, uh, bringing these pornographic schools and elementary school, I mean, books in elementary school libraries, that you stop telling this, teaching this defeatist uh, history that all blacks, you know, are slaves and they could be slaves and this stuff and, and whites need to, you know, teach them differently. That's one of the things that, that they're pushing is culturally relevant. Like blacks can learn math. I'm not saying they can't learn, but you learn it if you teach it in a hip way that they can understand it. Like there's no other way of math. I can say that without saying the Democrats need to stop. But when I say whoever's pushing this needs to go, the, the, on the local level, they know who it is. Okay, well, for our radio listeners, we're going to a quick break. It's three minutes. Don't go away. I'm Debbie George-Ass, America Can We Talk. We're talking with Charles Love, author of, author of Race Crazy. For online listeners, we are rolling right along. Okay, so I had to get that in very quickly. Um, you actually talked about in your book, too, something that I thought was um, really uh, insightful about the Black Lives Matter movement and this umbrella um, and I, I lost an is the, I actually don't tell me because I wrote it down. I took copious notes reading a book. Uh, there is a, a website that is, is dedicated to talking about, uh, it's not Black Lives Matter. It is, um, okay, tell me the name of it. <laughs> but you had it on your, in your, book, your talk too. It's a short website, but it's giving an overarching mission being explained by this group that is backing Black Lives Matter, 1619, all of that. The website was m4bl.org. It's the movement for black lives. No oh. one's ever heard of it. They got millions of dollars. When I found out some organization that given them, guaranteed them $100 million over like four or five years. Um, but no one knows who they are. But they write policy. They got ideas of what they think the movement should do. They fund and support. They, all, they, they list themselves as part of a, a they, saying that they have a network of 170 uh, specific organizations that they support through, you know, suggestions on talking points, legislations, funding, things of that nature. So you see the face of some of these other groups locally, there'll be a small little, like, let's say you're in Dallas and you just see this new group pop up and there it's just a small leftist group who's pushing some very, you know, niche ideology. They might be funded by the movement of Black Lives, but you, they'll never put the movement moving the black lives on. I think in the book, I talked about the one time it almost made national news. Tucker Carlson was doing uh, a story on, you've all probably heard this, the politicians who were bailing people out in Minneapolis after they were riding and yep, burning down yep. the police station. And, and so he did a, a Tucker Carlson expose thing where he tried to follow the money and they found out the organization. And it's like this group called the vision of something, it was some group, I don't remember the name of it. And, and he said, yes, and they were supported by Kamala Harris and these others, and they were bailing out these people. They put the sign up, and so it had the name of this group, but at the top it had the M4BL uh, logo, but he never mentioned them. Well, that actually... Of, so he spoke about the group, but he did the vision collective, but he didn't speak about the group behind the group. Yeah, I do want to talk about this M4BL, Movement for Black Lives, and it's for the digit. M4BL is the website, because I went and looked at it after I, I heard what you were saying uh, in that talk. right? Did it blow your mind? Oh, yeah. It blows your mind. And I'll say, welcome back to our radio listeners. We are. This is Debbie Georgias, America Can We Talk. We're talking with the author, Race Crazy, Charles Love. Uh, is a great, great book. I can't encourage you strong enough to read it. So this group you talk about, M4BL, I have to say that part of what happened after Trayvon Martin and you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, the movement itself got launched after Trayvon Martin incident, and then, and then they exploded. They, had, they got up to the Michael Brown incident in Ferguson. And, but people had this sense it was an organic thing. It was just a lot of really concerned Americans. But this M4BL uh, overarching organization that, in the website that you mentioned, that actually helps you see that this is a more orchestrated and a more sinister and a more broad agenda than simply Americans concerned about unfair actions. And so I'd love to have you talk about that, talk about what, what that website is telling, what it's all about. Yeah, and to be fair, you know, I try to you know be, be uh, fair and assume positive intent as often as you can, as bad as this stuff is. I would assume that those groups, those three women, the BLM and other groups, 
did start organically, did say, let's start this movie, did do that on their own, did make a little bit of money, did push for uh, to, to talk about police brutality, uh, still in the wrong way, because they still were saying that police were hunting down and killing all blacks, but that was their main goal. So they talked about it often. What I believe happened is someone with a very progressive lean came and said, oh, that's cute. You're raising tens of thousands of dollars. I can get you tens of millions, but, and you can still talk about what you're talking about. I just need you to add these other things. Because think about it, people forget this. Everybody talks about the nuclear family thing which they've since uh, removed. So everybody remembers that. But do you, are you an old school BLM person? Do you remember this? When they first started, you know, they were doing whatever. When they started to get prominence, like you said, they started Trayvon. By the time it hit Michael Brown, if you went on this site then, around 2016, you would have found all of a sudden BDS movement was uh, on, on their site. They were supporting the BDS movement and Free Palestine and things of this nature. Where did that come from? Are you trying to forget about whether you agree with it or not? That's not my argument. Do you honestly believe that three regular black women in the hood concerned about no more do I want my black men shot by police just said, oh, yeah, let's start a website. Let's put some BDS stuff up there. <laughs> it's not even logical. There's no way someone else had to be pushing that. So you fast forward beyond that to what you call the movement for black lives. So the new movement for black lives rights things. So they, if you go on that, they have a list of legislation. The way they break it up, it's like the Constitution. They have a preamble, and then they break up all these different types. It's like the war on like nine things. And it's like the war on black people, the war on black immigrants, the war on this, the war on this, the war on black women. And underneath these, they say the problem, uh, the, act, the our demands, and then actions. And at the back, at the end of the proposed actions, they have a list already prepared. Think about who I had to write this. Think if you think three grassroots people did this. There are a list of proposed legislations. They have names, the this act, the this act, like the, the I Can't Breathe Act and the uh, other one that they have, uh, the Breonna Taylor Act and all those. Have, it's probably like 60 of them. And they're ready to say, hey, once Congress moves far enough left, here you go, go past this. So it takes academics and educators and lawyers to write this kind of stuff. They speak in that type of speak. And they, but the problem is too, is that it also shifted beyond policing. So in my book, I write about why I think they're wrong and I, and I go through the numbers of why, you know, there are their problems and if you want to solve them, go to the root of the problem. But you can't paint the picture that every black person is being shot because you can't, these same people also say, that's why you lose, use logic. These same people also say that Mass incarceration is a problem because there's too many black men in jail. But if there's too many black men in jail, but the police are also hunting down and indiscriminately shooting black men, you have to ask the question, how the black men end up in jail? I thought they were all being shot. So that premise doesn't make sense. But even if you give it to them, I, I question for a greater part of the book, not whether policing is bad and should be revamped, but why BLM stopped talking about policing? So when they were making thousands of dollars, their focus was policing. Now that they're getting millions, they're all talking about minimum wage, reparations for, for, for migrants, uh, open borders, they're talking about mental health, they're talking about redistribution of wealth, all this stuff has nothing to do with policing, right? They, there's even a part where they're talking about election um, involvement and how they're going to get 10% of all Blacks, so 4 million Blacks, to go out and engage in, in elections and basically say both for Democrats. They say that Democrats and Republicans have failed us, but the Democrats are closer, so our job isn't to vote for Republicans or hold them both accountable. Our job is to pull the Democrats to the left. They say that in their private, yeah, on they, their page, openly. Yeah, they also have thing about ending the Electoral College which is yep. very bizarre thing to demand if you're really out there well, trying so to... The electoral college does go around shooting black men. <laughs> I forgot about that part, yeah. And, and they actually also had agenda items related to the gay, uh, lesbian agenda um, and the uh, LGBTQ agenda. And it, it really just becomes kind of a, uh, in my term, cesspool of all radical left ideas thrown in. And honestly, for the, the real advocates for women, men, parents, anyone who are concerned about what they think is police brutality in their communities, they think is excess force, they're kind of lost. Their, their voice is lost in this just morass of crazy leftist demands. It, it's almost like they get drowned out by the, the, the hard left, the, the earnest advocates and, and the earnest people concerned about black lives in America and safety and police are drowned out by the radical left agenda. And, and they, I mean, I, I have wondered, some of them are wondering, what happened to our, our, our simple agenda on trying to speak up for black America? 
You said an interesting word. It shouldn't be interesting, but I think people would be most, I don't know about most shocked because there's so much there, but this is a really shocking thing for me when I read it. So you said something about men. So who would be, whether it's fair or not fair, who is predominantly arrested and shot by police? Like men probably, right? So I found it interesting that they, they kept saying, they created words that they kept saying, I used to stumble over it, but now I'm a pro. Cis heteropatriarchy. I think they say that three times. They talk about advancing trans people to the front of the or the front of the fight. But the one thing is interesting. There's a long paragraph where they talk about all the people that they're focused on helping, but not limited to. And they say they say women, femme, trans, lesbian, uh, precariously housed, homeless, drug addicted, in the system, Muslim. This they go through. I don't know, sixty different things. You know the two they never say. They never say Jews. Technically, three. They never say Jews. They never say Christians, and they never say men. So the that's okay. The organization founded on minimizing police brutality and police shootings, which are mostly done to black men, whether they is defense or whether it's wrong, mostly black men, and they never mention black men. But we're giving them millions of dollars, and then we're shocked that they haven't done anything for black men. Well, I'm on their side. They can say, hey, we wrote the whole thing about all the people, a long list of all the people we support. Did we write black men on here? So why are you expecting us to, to help black men? In fact, Don Lemon said that. Some conservative went on and challenged him and said, black lives matter. I always talking about black lives, but they don't say anything when there's black on black crime. And, and, and Don Lemon, honestly, and I was on Don Lemon's side, said, but that's not what the organization's about. Go start your own organization. You want to focus on black on black crime. Black lives matter is about police brutality. So why should they talk about black on black crime? But they also, if, it, if they found it on police brutality, they should talk about the black men who was, you know, supposedly brutalized by police. They don't talk about them anymore either. Charles, your book is full of uh, stories and data, which I really appreciate. I, mean, the, in the, I mentioned in the beginning, before we got started, you lay out some really important points about the Trayvon Martin case, that the uh, Zimmerman was not a police officer, he wasn't a state actor. Uh, you talk about the Michael Brown case, which I've gone through that story, too, in my show uh, numerous times, the one eyewitness who's really probably swayed the grand jury, as she just said, uh, I don't think basically said that officer didn't have any choice. I mean, he was being. I don't like police, but he had no choice. Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I love those things. But I have to tell you, as a as you're just um, you're a great writer and you're a great speaker and you're not really trying to read a lead a political movement. I mean, you're not trying to rally um, a, a big political agenda, but you have so many insights that would really be helpful to America, that would lift America out of so much of the tension that, that is being artificially created or embellished arguments about the degree and, and spread of police brutality. I mean, you, you set so many facts straight. So what all are you doing in your life? You wrote this great book. I, I mean, how are you bringing all this to the world to help America lift itself out? I mean, I, I would just love to know what you're trying to do to get this message out. Well, I think I, 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 think I talk enough, and, and, and I probably should say this because I think I dismiss politics so much that people think I don't think it's important. I think it's highly important. I just put it at priority two or three, not number one. And I think, put it this way, you know, I moved to New York from Chicago. So when I talk to Chicago, they really get it. I say, the problem is if you ignore the culture, and you just because I used to talk to, to people, GOP all the time, this is what we need to do. And they're like, Charles, you're making sense. After the next election, well, come on, I'm not, you know, I'm not that slow. You're always running. There's always an election every two years, so it'll never come. But beyond that, if you focus on winning the election thinking, because we let it go too far, it probably would have worked a while ago, but now we've let the culture go too far, so we can't fix it legislatively. So what we, what we tend to do is say, well, get those Democrats out, we'll be fine. So what happens is the Democrats have done a good job of shifting the country as a whole, but definitely the big cities to the left. So maybe you can still fight. Everybody thinks it's the opposite. It's hard for Republicans to win, uh, you know, the, you know, on the national level because of the population spread. But on the state level, you know, they do whatever. But the problem is on the state level, yes, they can win a governorship. They, they win the majority of them. But when you lo run for the things that matter, and some states governor, but definitely county um, roles, city roles, this, because this, the area has shifted to the left, everybody kind of moves. Unless you're a warrior and you stand strong, everybody gets pushed. 
So in Illinois, we talked about, so you all fought, you wouldn't even listen to me because you were so focused, we just got to get that Republican elected. And you got Bruce Rauman, and then you got liberal policies because he felt that he needed to be more moderate in order to govern and to win. So he compromised his principles and, and moved left in order to, you know, to, to legislate. So that's what, to govern. So that's what you get. You're gonna get, if you don't focus on the culture, tomorrow's Republican will be today's true, you know, what we call a conservative Democrat or a true liberal, right? And everybody shifts. So, I mean, it's the reason why Mitt Romney was marching in a BLM march. Did we not forget that? But he's a Republican, so we win? No. I think that, but, but the politics is important, and I think it is. I just think that we can't, because we've gone so far, we can't just instantly create Republicans. So you need to open eyes, right? Get people to start to read more, to read both sides. Don't believe everything. You gotta, you gotta fix that part work first. Teach them to walk, get them back in shape. You know, they're politically obese. I just made that up on your show. That's gonna be my new show. So they're politically obese. So you can't just have them, you know, just try out for the Lakers. I mean, I think we need to get them to lose some weight first, start working it off, get in shape. And then once they're in shape, then we can guide them politically and try to move them to a party if that's what you want to do. But you just can't take somebody who's been eating, drinking, and living CNN for five years and just say, you should be a Republican. You're wasting your energy. So that's all I'm saying. Stop the cultural shift. Because, I mean, they're the Lincoln Project. They're so-called conservatives who, who, who believe this, either believe this stuff or think it's not that big of a problem. They think Trump is a bigger problem than telling the kid the types of things I mentioned earlier. I love that thought, and I do believe the people who are, I use this expression in uh, speeches about how everybody has their little world, their, their little universe, and, you know, you can influence so much in what you're willing to talk about, what you're willing to share, what you're willing to plant seeds about, and that little, you know, that whole pebble in a pond and the ripple goes, uh, that, that idea of having people speak up in their own communities, their own you know, whether it's your church friend, your tennis club, your neighborhood, whatever it is, to start to speak truth and spread those things, because you eventually will get people, more people awake, then they don't have to be told, vote Republican. They have, they know, I don't want to feed this beast of the left anymore. I want, I want to try to, I don't like what the left is doing. I'm going to stand up. And they, and when they arrive at that conclusion in their own hearts, then, then they're, they're really more unshakable than if you just kind of try to arm twist them. Okay, I know we have about 15 more minutes. And I do, I fake up my audience here by telling them they get to ask questions. No, they really do. And just a few minutes. But I want to hit one other thing um, that I think is really, um, I, I, you know, uh, I don't know what the right word for it is or, or how to even talk about it, but. I think in the public schools, this embracing the 1619 project and uh, the BLM agenda or the CRT agenda, all that in the public schools, much of it is embraced by the schools because of teachers unions, but even in private schools having it, it's embraced because you, the way the political calculation is done, the notion that you would oppose it, that you'd be afraid of it, that you would try to fight it in your school, it's just so much easier to submit to the leftist pressure on the schools to embrace these things. Then, and so, you know, it's like, it's like the, the people who want to speak truth about race relations, truth about police brutality, truth about systemic racism, truth about America, those people, they don't push at the schools and, the, and they don't push at the administration, but the kind of world of academia finds it so much easier just to surrender to everything the left is, is saying. And, and they may not, you may have teachers teaching this who thinking, I don't really believe this, but this is what I was told to teach. I mean, isn't there just a, a need, a, a crying need for America-loving, truth-loving, anti-racist people to be active and, and be the voice in their community and their schools as a, one of the means to shift the conversation back to truth, to what is, is true about America. Without a doubt, but it's like, um, like I said, the uh, culture has shifted and everybody's not going to stand up. Like I say, unless you stand up to fight it, it's pushing you. you you're pushing back against it. Everybody's going to move a little bit. It's like, you know, C.S. Lewis, we got a bunch of men without chest. So, yeah, I mean, we can argue and try to do a study to find out why we do it, why they're doing it. That could be somewhat helpful. But if I know what they're doing is bad, I don't really care why they're doing it. The issue is 
why aren't people standing up? You mentioned something about teachers. I've had, I had a teacher tell, tell me that they were, te were teaching. I'm like, well, why would you teach that? Since we will have to, we're forced by the district. And to be fair to her, I'm like, I get it. That's true. You, you have to do that. But they don't really dictate how you teach it. So they're not stopping you from teaching nuance or teaching the other side or saying, yes, we have that they want you to understand this, but I want you to also know, I don't want you to walk out of here thinking that black life is horrible and blacks are all slaves or whatever the case may be. And she said something that really, really startled me. She said, but I don't know enough about that topic to do that. And that is the key point that no one's talking about. So why should they do, why should you teach that? That, that? You're admitting that you should be teaching. So we have people who aren't prepared to do this. So, you know, I'm a teacher and I'm a certified teacher, but I teach math or I teach whatever else. And now you're forcing me to become a race specialist without teaching me the nuances of race. So I just hand them whatever one of the books. You give me a stack of books, I pick one, I have them read it. And then I'm like, oh, when they ask the question, I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, you send you send the kids out without knowing unarmed, right? Did you basically just did just enough to harm them? And now you don't know, you see that they're running around crazy because you broke them and you don't know how to fix them. What do I do? Well, there's no manual for that. So maybe you know you shouldn't have been talking about that in the first place. So either learn it, code, or don't do it. And, you know, as far as the school boards and all that, people need to push back against them and the people creating policy. And, and, and here's another quick important thing. You need to write alternatives because some of the people will say, well, give me something else. Or teachers have leeway, like I said. So I know I can teach this. So to that teacher say, well, I don't know what to do. So what I do, I'm going to give her curricula that 1776 Unites and my organization and others have done and said, use this. So now they can teach about people they don't know, like um, A. Philip Randolph and... Um, and um, Robert Smalls and, you know, people like that, that they don't know. So now they can teach, you know, positive stories and, and kind of arm them with information. Yeah, quickly, Charles, but I meant to mention, and I'm sorry, I probably didn't do a thorough enough introduction of you because I know you're part of 1776 Unites. Um, and I also will say the 1776 Project, I've had someone on the show who was part of that, which was the Trump effort to respond to 1619. But very quickly, tell us about 1776 Unites. Yeah, 1776 Unites is an organization that was founded by Bob Woodson, uh, a pioneer of the civil rights movement. He left at the end because they weren't doing anything, talk, like you say, talking solutions and effective positive change. He started the Woodson Center, and he just started giving back and creating people in the communities who acted in the communities on their own, who actually did things, doers. And so he saw the 1619 Project, and he wanted to create an alternative. So he reached out to a, a group of scholars, and since the original group has grown, there's Glenn Lowry from Brown University, John McWhorter, uh, Will Riley, who's a professor at Kentucky State, and my co-host at the Cut the Bull podcast. Um, there's a lot of Coleman Hughes. Um, there's a lot of people who are just speaking out against the narrative that they're teaching. So we have a curricula. We have, I mean, we, we, we have different um, educational things that you can download, uh, the 1776 curriculum. We have uh, a newsletter we send out, a lot of information. We all do... Um, public uh, speaking and go to events. We try to convince schools uh, and school districts to bring in uh, alternative speakers, uh, businesses and things of the like, just so they can hear a more uplifting, positive, pro-American version of the same things. It's not like we don't talk about slavery and Jim Crow and racism, but we just don't, like we'll talk Tulsa, but the 1619 Project could tell you white racists burned down this wealth in Tulsa, Tulsa. And we will say, yes, that's true, but they didn't tell you how, in spite of racism, they built this wealth, and they didn't tell you that after it happened, they built it back. So do you want to learn it all, or do you just want to learn so much negative that as a black kid, you just think, wow, well, we have no chance. Our opportunities are limited when we all know they're not. Love that. And the website is 1776unites.com. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So I believe we have in the audience, someone has a microphone, or who has a microphone? Okay. And um, I don't know if folks have questions. You can raise your hands. No? Wow, they're all like... No, we really, really like him. <laughs> we, we like hearing him talk. That so we really, yes, I'm just saying there, we're all just sitting here like taking notes and going, oh my gosh, we want you just to keep talking. So you're answering the questions for us so far. I'm speaking, I'm not speaking on behalf of everyone, but we lo we just love hearing what he has to say. And I love hearing more about 1776 Unites. That We want to kind of like, can we morph it and multiply it and spread it across to every state? 
I hope we're growing though, but yeah, I hope so. Um, what you can do is just make sure you download the curriculum and have other people download it. Like I say, you talk to everybody. So you tell your other parents, they say, I learned this, my kids or my grandkids are learning this in school. It's like, you should just download this. It's free to download. You know, you learn about Biddy Mason and all, all these wonderful people and things. You, you learn about doers. You learn that, uh, you know, I, uh, we should talk about this. I don't think we have a, a curriculum on this yet, but, you know, I used to challenge people when they talk about the black defeatism. I was like, well, uh, did you, people love the Harlem Renaissance. They talk about uh, Zora Hughes and they talk about Lacey Hughes, all these other people. Um, and I'd say, um, do you know where they went to school? I mean, of course, they couldn't go to Princeton because Wilson was a racist, but a lot of them went to Ivy League schools. But then I asked them, when do they think the first black American graduated uh, from college? Most people say somewhere between the late 18, somewhere 1890 to 1920. I, I don't remember the year, but I think it's the uh, 1830s. It was definitely before the Civil War. Wow. Okay. We have one person with a quick question, I think. Is that right? No? Okay. Okay. In that case, I want to do something. Uh, before we're going to be out of time, we, we're going to... Our radio listeners are going to leave us in a couple of minutes. For our radio listeners, I want to mention something, and then everyone else I, I can see this. But um, I want to make sure you know about this event. And um, it's here in, for our happy listeners in North Texas. There's an event next week on Wednesday, February 2nd, starting at 6.30 check-in, 7 p.m., and it's put on by Country Girls for Freedom. you got to love that name if you're in Texas, Country Girls for Freedom. But it's an event I will be uh, moderating, and it has one of the uh, candidates for governor in Texas, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, and also Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Lohmeyer will be there. And he is the gentleman who was a space, he was a U.S. Um, Air Force guy, was a Space Force commander who was let go because he wrote a book about how Marxism has invaded America's military. Well, we sure can get this in. Uh, this is the uh, flyer for it. You can see there. And I also sent to uh, Ziggy, the wonderful producer. Uh, okay, there you go. Who will defend the Republic event? Running along the bottom of the screen, you can see the link to get to uh, tickets for this event. There is no charge, but uh, you do need to register. And I, if I can read that from here, it's saying eventbrite.com backslash E, and then who will defend the Republic tickets. Um, and you can even email me to ask about tickets to email me at americacanbetalk at gmail.com. We love a big crowd there to be talking about who is going to defend the Republic, uh, which we, in the great state of Texas, we have our race for governor coming up in just, um, actually the, the primary is occurring on March 1st. And then uh, if there, there may be a runoff after that. And, and it's, a, it's a very big consequential race in Texas. So I want to get that in before we lose our listeners. So uh, back to you, sir. I really, I, I want, I got to get that plug in while the show's still live. Um, and we are about to lose, actually, let me, one more thing to our radio listeners. This is America Can We Talk. You can see everything about our show at americacanwetalk.org. Go there and see past shows, everything else we do. I'm Debbie George Addis. Tune in every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. Goodbye to radio folks. Okay, online. This is how fast I can talk. I grew up in New York, by the way. I love New York. It's a great place. Okay. We, have, we still, though, have two more minutes until, or three more minutes until we're done. So, um, you know, you, you have, honestly, this show is watched by activists. You just, I mean, people who like my show love activists. So everyone's listening to you and, and all that you've done, beside buying your books, which I'm sure you would suggest they do, um, they could, is it possible, for example, could they share this uh, 1776 Unites curriculum with their school and encourage the school to invite a speaker? Is that one thing they could do? Definitely. Uh, have everyone basically have everybody with an email downloaded. That's one. Um, two, they can uh, go to their school and say, I mean, we, we, my motto is I have logic will travel. So um, we will go to schools and speak to schools. I mean, I speak to a couple here. I'm doing one Zoom in Indiana, but yeah, I'll speak to your, your elementary or your junior high school uh, kids and many of the other scholars in 1776 as well. So that's something. I also have a podcast called Cut the Bull that is really interesting. We have some interesting guests there, so you should check that out on YouTube or Spotify or Apple, wherever you listen. Um, Say the name and, of it again. Uh, Cut the Bull. It's the Cut the Bull podcast. Okay. And so they it's can find that on YouTube. So YouTube kicked me off. I'm so maybe you could talk to them about that. Let me back on. <laughs> I see that a lot, you know, but I guess so far I'm flying under the radar, so I'm safe. Yeah, well, 
I, I was over the radar, I guess, more than more than too many times. So I'm I'm done with them. Well, okay. First of all, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. This book is really great. Honestly, the the title "Race Crazy: BLM 1619 and the Progressive Racism Movement." I'll tell you one thing I took away from reading it and also listening to you is just that. I think too many Americans thought when this movement came around, the 1619 and BLM, they thought, wow, America is a much worse place than I thought. I never knew America was so bad. And if you don't have context and, and someone responding, you, you could just feel so uh, disheartened about our country. So among the many things you've accomplished is help people see that actually you're not being told the whole truth. Their opinion of America is not true, which I, I think people need to hear. So I'll, I'll give you the closing shot in our last 30 seconds here about how to find you, where to go and watch you. Please let them have it. Yeah, so uh, my radio show, The Charles Love sh uh, Show, is on AM 560 The Answer. You can find it on the internet at uh, 560 The Answer. It's in Chicago. The podcast is Cut the Bull Podcast. The book you know, race crazy. Also, we want equality. You would really enjoy that. You can find me on Twitter at CDouglasLove3, and my website is DCharlesLove.com. Sir, I thank you so much for joining us. I thank you for joining us. Thank you. And my very fine friends, we're out of time for today. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can